welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen, as well as links to this podcast and anything else that I've written for that week. This week, I wrote about the debate over pornography and the conservative movement, covering the law and the legal angles there, as well as how that impacts how you can look at the culture debate overall. I also wrote about the elections in the United Kingdom and how you can compare some of the results there to the Democratic primary, specifically if you're looking at Bernie Sanders. And then finally, in the newsletter, I talked about the articles of impeachment that were passed by Democrats and what each article meant and how to think about them moving forward. So if anything like that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up for all of that and get it in your email inbox at the end of each week at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. You can go there and sign up for the newsletter. It's free. It's the easiest way to get my columns analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about getting any more spam. You just get all the things that I'm releasing each week. Finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, wherever you get those podcasts, and those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the algorithms, and so I look forward to hearing from you in those comments or in any emails or feedback that you guys have sent in. All right, so for this week's show, this week I'm covering the United Kingdom's general election in 2019. I wanted to cover some of the interviews that we're giving through there that I'm not able to cover through writing. I'm also going to talk about the big week this week. There are three large votes that you have to keep track of this week, and they all kind of impact each other because they all kind of relate to each other politically, and that is the vote on the USMCA. That is the new NAFTA agreement that's going to govern free trade between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. There's a big vote over funding the United States government. That's going to be the continuing resolution that will fund it. I've heard some estimates for most of next year. I'm expecting it to go beyond the the election of I'm expecting it to go beyond the 2020 election, but we'll see moving forward. And then also the impeachment vote. And that's the big one this week that everyone will be covering, but the other two sort of interact with that. So we're going to talk through all of the different things that lead in to those votes. But first, I wanted to start off this week talking about the elections in the United Kingdom because they're very large, and I think you can draw some lessons from those, just as we were able to draw some lessons in 2016 when there was the large vote over Brexit, over whether or not the United Kingdom was going to stay or leave the European Union, and they ultimately voted to leave. That has impacted their politics ever since then, and we were able to draw some parallels from that looking forward because the Brexit election and the referendum happened about six months before Donald Trump ended up being elected in the United States, and we started seeing this populist surge across Europe and in the United States. So it's important to sort of watch what's happening over there sometimes because it can trigger some analysis and just some ways where you can look at what's happening in the United States. And I call this seismic just because it's hard to understate what happened in the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson, the prime minister, won a stronger majority for the Conservative 
Party in, in United Kingdom. It's the strongest majority that the Conservative Party has had since 1987, when Margaret Thatcher was still the Prime Minister, and it's the strongest any party has had there in Britain since Tony Blair was winning his large majorities, and the largest of those was in 2001. So, and those were for Labour. So, for either party, this is the biggest majority one of the parties has had to work with in a very long time, and it just shows you that it, one, it was seismic just because where the conservatives were winning, it's similar to what you've seen here in the United States, where the conservatives were taking places that the Labour Party had held for forever. These were rural working party districts where members of parliament were winning in places that Labour just hasn't lost. Sometimes there were some places they hadn't lost since like 1918. There were some places they hadn't lost since like the 1950s. These were strongholds for the Labour Party, and the Conservatives were picking them off one by one everywhere, and that led them to have this large majority, which is going to allow Brexit to move forward. There's no doubt now that Boris Johnson's going to be able to get Brexit done, as he campaigned on, and it's going to happen. You're going to hear a little, little, little bit of an interview a little bit later here where some of the Remain Labor people are wanting a second referendum. After all of these years, they didn't like the results of the first one's vote, so they wanted to hold a second vote. And this just all but puts a nail in any of that discussion. There's not going to be a second vote. Brexit is going to happen. The United Kingdom is going to leave the European Union, and that's all there's going to be about this. And because of all that, it's been popular to think of this being the second Brexit, um, the second Brexit election, just because that's what this meant. If you're voting for Boris Johnson, you knew you were voting to leave the European Union because that's what he was campaigning on to get Brexit done. And so Brexit certainly played a role, but it's not everything that that was happening along here. The major thing and the major reason that the Labour Party lost this election was that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, was absolutely hated. When Theresa May, the former prime minister, held a snap election in the aftermath of Brexit and she faced Jeremy Corbyn then, Jeremy Corbyn's unfavorables were a negative too. People largely didn't like him, but it wasn't overwhelmingly disliked. And so that allowed them to keep a narrow minority status and to sort of block any form of Brexit happening in Parliament and also block anything that Theresa May wanted to do. Well, since then, in the two years, since 2017 to now, his unfavorabilities have just plummeted. He went from negative 2 to negative 40 which means that just he was so underwater that he didn't he basically didn't have a favorability rating. Everybody hated him. And for reason too. They kept learning more and more about him and just what a disgusting human being that he is because it's not just that he's the leader of the Labour Party. He's a fringe radical type of person. He supported the IRA terrorists and openly and, and advocated for them and held special sil- moments of silence for them, invited them to parliament. He supported Palestinian terrorist groups. He's openly anti-Semitic. He and all his supporters will deny that to your face, but he keeps siding with all these various groups who don't just dislike Israel and its po- their policies. These groups actively want the eradication of Israel and Jews, and some of Corbyn's own supporters in this election, when the exit poll first came out, were blaming Jewish voters for 
for what happened to them in this election. So Corbyn represents a very old version of socialist anti-Semitism that's existed in the world for forever, but he personifies it to a very strong um, degree, so much so that the leading rabbi in London had to come out with a statement condemning him in the press to saying that he, Jeremy Corbyn, was anti-Semitic and all Jews should reject him in London. And so it, this election, while Brexit play, when you're looking at a wipeout like this of one party, there are multitude of factors that go into play of how one party gets that much of an advantage over the other. But you can't, when you looked at what people cared about and how they were voting, especially in these labor-heavy districts, what you were seeing is that these voters were looking at Jeremy Corbyn specifically, and they were listing him at the top of their list for why they were voting against the Labor Party and voting for the Tories, voting for the conservatives. Because they were looking at Corbyn, they, they just could not bring themselves to vote for him in any capacity or to make him a prime minister. And one of the and it wasn't just voters who were looking at this. Jeremy Corbyn was hated within his own party. Now you might be sitting there saying to yourself, "Well, he if he was hated within his own party, how did he ever come to power?" And he he shouldn't have ever come to power. What Labor did was they there was this long thing where he ended up having the rules end up getting changed that benefited him over time, and so he was able to exploit these loopholes and go from being a minority candidate to becoming the prime minister and just absolutely decimating the entirety of the Labor Party. And it, this is not just me saying this. It's not just a conservative in America saying this. It's not just conservatives in London saying this. This is what the Labor Party itself is saying. And one of the interviews I wanted to show you is from a former member of parliament, Ruth Smith, and she gave an interview live on television. They were asking her whether or not if she knew if she had won or not, and she knew that she had lost, and they were asking her what she thought and why she lost and what she thought about labor just getting decimated. Because what happens in the UK is that once polls close, once people aren't allowed to vote anymore, they come out with an exit poll. And this exit poll that they conduct is a lot more accurate than what you see in the United States. Just be, it, they have a better methodology. I don't know. There's a lot of things that go into that, but it is highly accurate, and in the margin of error on it's usually like one or two points. There have been misses in the past, but this was not one of those nights. And when everybody saw the results of it, they knew immediately what had happened, and they knew why it happened. And so this is Ruth Smith. She had just lost her seat, and this is her reacting live on television to losing her seat in Parliament and why and who she blamed that for happening. This is, never mind the party, this is an appalling night for my constituents and it's an appalling night for the country. And the Labour Party has huge, huge questions to answer by, first of all, having this general election when they were so ill-prepared for it, but then having this option available to the country, having this platform, having this leadership and allowing this devastation that uh, uh, hit all of our communities. This is an appalling, heartbreaking night for the Labour Party, but I'm much, much more worried about now what happens to my constituents. Indeed. Well, uh, you say more or less that uh, the Labour Party's let them down. Where does the finger point first of all? Jeremy Corbyn. Has he got to go? Jeremy Corbyn should announce that he's, leave, um, that he's resigning as leader of the Labour Party from his count today. I think he should it's have gone a while back. 
he should have gone and you know he should have gone many 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 months ago I am, uh, well, I was the parliamentary chair of the Jewish Labour movement. We passed a vote of no confidence in him in April. There is absolutely no justification for why he's still there. And his personal actions have delivered this result for my constituents and for swathes of the country overnight. So again, that's Ruth Smith, a former member of Parliament, talking about why she lost her particular election and why Labour lost overall, and she lays the blame at the feet of Jeremy Corbyn. And I want you to notice something that she said there. She helped, as a part of the Jewish coalition in Parliament, she helped push a vote of no confident confidence in the Labour Party to Jeremy Corbyn. And lots of people tried to kick Corbyn out of office, and none of those efforts succeeded. Multiple people tried to say that he should leave office on account of his anti-Semitism, of all the things he said, of all the terrorist groups he supported. And when you went door-knocking and you asked people what they thought, they were pointing to this. And a lot of the Corbyn supporters just brushed this off saying, oh, this is just a media smear. But in reality, what people did is they just looked at what Corbyn himself said. So this was an election that focused on Jeremy Corbyn. It focused on his socialism. It focused on his extremism and his anti-Semitism, and people rejected it. I think it was Piers Morgan who said that the British people stared socialism right in the face and just said, nope, don't want it, which is quite something because they have quite an extensive form of just state control of everything. They have socialized medicine and they have state control of education and other things, and you find this everywhere. But they looked at what Corbyn wanted and they looked at who he was and they absolutely rejected him outright. Now, as a conservative, this is fantastic. You want people rejecting this type of leadership and these type of ideas. That's a good thing. And if you're the Labor Party, you want to purge this. But it wasn't just about Corbyn. It was also There was also some play on Brexit. And so this next interview that I want to show you is from the BBC. And this is what the people who support remaining in the European Union are saying in the face of this election. So they've seen the exit poll results, and this is them reacting live on air. They're looking at the fact that they've lost an election again, and that remaining in the European Union is not a thing. And the amazing part is that they're still in this fantasy land of the Leave vote and Brexit are still not valid things, and that the will of the people is being not followed, according to them. You have to listen to it to believe it. So here it is. This was an interview the night of on the BBC talking about Brexit's role in this election. The the most Remain party in this election, the Liberal Democrats, are getting nowhere uh, overall. Their leader has just lost a seat. There'll be no people's vote, which is what you've been campaigning for. And Mr. Majority, uh, Mr. Mr. Johnson has a majority to take us out of the EU. He's got a majority in Parliament. I don't believe he's got a majority in the country for his hard Brexit. What does he have to do? People voted for a referendum in 2016 to leave. They've given a, 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 a government that has campaigned explicitly on leave a huge majority. What else do you need? We need the permission of the British people, which he's... Which he do you didn't, think they've just done? No, no, no. He, he wouldn't dare do that. He wouldn't put his deal to the British people and people's vote. Instead of that, he held a general election. He exploited a divided opposition. He ducked an interview with you, and he ducked, he ducked an opportunity to win permission for, from the British people for his hard Brexit. I mean, people will listen to you and think you're, I mean, you're in cloud cuckoo land. 
you lose, you lose, you lose, but you still say, oh, he hasn't really got a mandate to do this. Look, I think what we're going to see over the next few weeks and months is Boris Johnson trying to fulfil the many contradictory promises he's made for his Brexit policy. I think, you know, if it comes on the scrutiny, maybe if he has the courage to sit down with you, you can ask him some questions yeah, for once. Yeah, I'm not the story here. The story you is... Were briefly. The story yeah. is that you lost. Yeah, we, and you've lost badly. Yeah, this is... This and is, you keep on losing, and the people have voted again, and therefore it is, whether you like it or not, it's another issue, it's time to leave. Look, look, the, the, no-one's pretending that this is a good night for campaigners for a final save referendum. But the fact well, there, there remains... Won't be a refer yeah. There won't be a people's vote now. It's over. Not now. I, I, I agree. I mean, you've been I, I ripping agree. yourselves apart anyway. I, then you get fired from it. Yeah, I think one of the big questions you could ask about what happened in this general election campaign is why Roland Rudd decided to disable the most successful and biggest people's vote campaign on the day the election okay. was called. You can just hear the exasperation in the BBC anchor's voice. You have these people on there saying, oh, you know, we'll have another vote. We'll try to push farther. And it's just like, that's that's not going to happen. This election has happened. Boris Johnson is going to leave the European Union, and that's going to be that. There is no going back. Labor failed so hard that this is not going to happen. It's, it's just flat out not going to happen. And they're continually arguing, as you can see here, in the face of two elections here that they've lost, that the results are not legitimate and that the people's will is being ignored. And you just have to ask, how, how is this even possible? I mean, he's, his argument here is that Boris Johnson exploited a loophole and that loophole was holding a general election. General elections are loopholes now. That's where we are. That's just where we are now. We're dealing with the fact that elections are considered loopholes by people who are pushing for their side. They keep losing, but these are just loopholes, they say. These are invalid results. The will of the people is being ignored. You have a democratic process taking place, and the results are still invalid because they keep losing. And it's just incredible to listen to this. This was happening before this election in Parliament when you had members of Parliament who knew and who said they understood the results of the Brexit referendum and they were refusing to follow the will of the people. That's why there was an election to begin with, because Parliament for the last three years has resisted the will of the people on this point. They refused to pass any form of Brexit, whether it was soft, hard, anything in between. It didn't matter. Parliament refused to go through with Brexit, and it ripped apart the Parliament, and it ripped apart people's trust in the Parliament overall. And this is why we're here. We're here because Labour refused to come down one way or the other on Brexit, and Boris Johnson said, "All right, well, if we're going to have, a, we're going to hold all these votes. We're going to three. We're going to throw three specific votes where we're going to vote for these three different kinds of Brexit. And after you refuse all of them and refuse anything else, we're going to hold a general election. And that's what happened. And the people said, we like it. He wants to get Brexit done, and we don't have to hear about it ever again." And Labor was sit there, was sitting there saying, "Well, we don't know what we want, because Jeremy Corbyn also, you know, secretly he also wants to leave the European Union because he wants to make the United Kingdom a more socialist place, but he can't come out and say that because everybody else in his party wants to remain in the European Union. So that's kind of it comes back again. 
to Jeremy Corbyn and his failure as a leader, as a socialist, as an anti-Semite, and as a head, a figure of the technically he was he was leading up the Remain faction of the of the politics, and so that made this even more strange. So every bit of this was just his failure on down. Now they could, might be able to get rid of him and solve things. I don't know. But the knives are out in British politics, and if you want a taste for how hard these knives are out, just with, you know, you had a member of parliament and you had this debate here between these other two people, here's one last interview that happened on ITV where a former uh, former member of parliament and also part of the governing faction, I think he was their version of Secretary of State, I forget the title now, but he came out, Alan, his name is Alan Johnson, and he came out very hard against Corbyn, and not just Corbyn, but the people within the party who represent Corbynism, the Corbynistas, as they call them. He mentions this momentum group, and these are people who are explicitly on the more socialist side, and they push for the most extreme form of a manifesto of a party in British history. And he had words to say on live TV. They put a question to him of what he thought was happening. And the guy he's talking about is literally sitting right next to him in a chair. And so he's not just talking about these people in the ether. He's literally blasting them to their face live on television. So here are the knives out. More from British television that night. I don't live in London. I live in Yorkshire. I live in a working class community. And I've known John for many years. John's been around, you know, from the Benite days. And I'm afraid the working classes have always been a big disappointment for John and his cult. Corbyn was a disaster on the doorstep. Everyone knew that he couldn't lead the working class out of a paper bag. Now John's developed this momentum group, this party within a party, aiming to keep the purity. The culture of betrayal goes on. You'll hear it now more and more over the next couple of days as these, this little cult get their act together. I want them out of the party. I want momentum gone. Go back to your student politics and your little, you know, left wing. But that isn't realistically going to happen, is oh, it? Well, well, I'm just I saying, mean, I don't know. I'm saying I what yeah, I want. Yeah. Saying what I want after if that ex- exit poll's wrong, the most disastrous result for the Labour Party, the worst result since 1935. People like uh, John and his pals will never admit this, but they are. They have messed up completely. And it's our communities that are going to pay for that. I feel really angry about this, that we persevered with Corbyn for this kind of experiment of back to the future. John. And I could keep playing these clips all night, just going through and talking through each individual TV station and what people were saying and just what was happening overall. And it's just insane when you start looking at this and you start looking what people are saying and what they're feeling about this. They were livid at Corbyn. And so it just keeps going on. You can go in and look at, read any of the newspapers over there, especially some of the more left-leaning ones. They are blasting Jeremy Corbyn. And as a conservative, I like this just because he is a socialist and he's an anti-Semite and he's deserved every ounce of hatred that he's gotten. And I think it's, if you're an American Democrat and you're looking at this, you need to look at this and say, what does it mean that we are also having our own socialist wing rise up when what is it going to mean for electoral politics? Does Bernie Sanders equal the same thing as a Jeremy Corbyn? 
Now, I have a column out talking about this point, and I argue that, yes, it does, because Sanders and Corbin, their supporters have shown a lot of support over a very long time. You find pictures of all of them together. They have similar policy preferences. They say a lot of the same things. And unfortunately for Sanders, a lot of his supporters and a lot of his endorsers, people like Linda Sarsour and others who are part of the Women's March, are also as anti-Semitic as you'll find in the Corbin campaign. These people have not gotten condemned in the U.S media quite to the extent that they got it in the British media. Noah Rothman, a columnist over at Commentary Magazine, he wrote a column the day after the UK elections happened. And in his column, he said that United States journalists need to take a page from their British counterparts and start asking people like Bernie Sanders why they have all of these anti-Semitic people around them, because it mattered in that election. And we need to have him answer the same questions that Jeremy Corbyn had to answer. All of these anti-Semitic people, all of these Jew-hating people who are around him, he needs to answer these questions because it's important. And Noah Rothman's column, it got dogpiled by people in the media. He got dogpiled by politicians on the left. It got dogpiled by Bernie Sanders supporters and activists. None of them want this type of treatment. They do not want these questions. And as Rothman said, you know, he had touched a raw nerve because one of their giants, Jeremy Corbyn, had just fallen. And now they're having to come to terms with the fact that they are not ascendant. They are not winning. And they are being forced to answer these questions. And the media doesn't want to do it in America. They don't want to do it. The Democratic Party was already forced to put out a resolution condemning anti-Semitism because some of their own do the same thing. And they couldn't even do that. They put out a resolution against general hatred. They can't even condemn anti-Semitism. And they're marching towards the same path that Jeremy Corbyn took the Labor Party down. United States and UK socialists no longer represent the poor working class, like they like to claim. These are all the same types of people. They're rich white kids in cities who believe in socialism and the power of socialism to rule everyone else's lives. And the conservative and Republican parties are bringing in these rural poor voters and in droves because these people are rejecting this form of socialism. They do not want it. They don't want this form of anti-Semitism either. That's also getting rejected. And so that's the state of these parties. They're all in the same place. And if you look over the United Kingdom, that's the path that the Democratic Party has in front of it if they don't fix it. And I want them to fix it because I don't want any major party in the United States ever dabbling in socialism or ever dabbling in outright anti-Semitism. You don't want racism in either party. I get that it exists there, but when you see it, you're supposed to check it if you can. And we're not seeing that. They're openly defending these people in their own parties. So there's a lesson there for Democrats if you look over the United Kingdom. And they're trying to ignore that. They're sort of in the denial and anger stage of grief, dealing with the fact that Jeremy Corbyn, is he lost, and his supporters can't defend the fact that they want to retain power over there. They are trying to be actively kick them out of power. So the United Kingdom elections, it's a seismic election. It's a great result. I'm happy that it happened. And there's a lot of lessons you can draw that for United States politics. So keep that all in mind. After the break, we'll come back and we'll go over the three big votes this week and what you need to keep in mind. So like I said, there are three big votes this week you need to know about going into this week and just that are going to color all politics 
from every angle. And the first one is the funding for the United States government, a continuing resolution that runs out, I believe it's on the 20th or somewhere around there, and they have to pump that through in order to keep the government funded. No one wants a government shut down, and so you're going to see everyone sign and agree to that. I think they'll try to push that funding to keep the government funded past the November elections in 2020, but if they don't, just keep an eye on that because that could mean that we could have another government funding fight in the middle of the presidential election, and that could get pretty interesting pretty quickly. So that's something to watch. Just I mean, The main thing there is that it's one of my annoyances with this entire process. We're not in a regular budgetary mode, and so they're just passing these continuing resolutions over and over and over again to keep the government funded. And I would like to see a return to normal budgetary financing where Congress actually passes a budget that the president signs into law, and that covers everything. But since the meltdown in the financial markets in 2008, we basically haven't had a budget in the United States government, and it's really annoying if you think that's an important thing for Congress to do, which I do. And so that's just going to be something that happens this week. We're not going to pass the budget anytime soon. I don't know what's going to, what it'll take to make it change that, but that's just where we are. So that's the first major vote. The second one is the vote over the new NAFTA, the USMCA, United States, Mexico, and Canada. And this is one that all, everyone also wants as well. Nancy Pelosi's moderates and her party need this so that they can go to their, their districts, the moderates do anyway, to say that they were able to work with the president to pass certain things that are good for these districts. And so Pelosi's not going to block that because she needs them to be able to have this win, to be able to say that they have done something. You may also see her try to pass some drug pricing legislation that'll go nowhere but the House. So it'll pass the House, but the Senate won't touch it just because it's Pelosi's pet legislation. And it'll give them something else, these monitors, to run about to say that they ran on health care. They passed a health care bill in the form of their drug financing. That'll never come to law. And they also passed the trade initiatives with the president, which is something that he wanted so they can say that they acted in a bipartisan manner. So those are the two basic ones. Both of those are going to pass. It's just a matter of when and how. The third one is the vote on impeachment. And I think this one right now is scheduled to be the second major thing that will happen. I think they're going to lead off with either funding, just do the dating on it, and then end with the trade deal, or the other way around. I'm not sure. Um, But the last major thing I saw from a political reporter was that the impeachment was slated to to happen in the middle of the week and be the second major thing the House voted on. So... The major thing about impeachment is this is now, it's it's now out of Adam Schiff's, his committee, and all the investigation that happened there, and it's out of the House Judiciary Committee, which is Jerry Nadler's committee. If you read the newsletter this week, you saw me talking about the articles that his the Judiciary Committee was debating, and how Nadler pulled some kind of stunt at the very end, and they voted on it on Friday instead of the scheduled day of Thursday. That ended up being a big nothing burger. He just pushed it to mess with Republicans. So that was the only thing that happened there. But now, now it's put up or shut up time. Now it's time for the full House to vote on articles of impeachment to send over to the Senate. And so this is Pelosi's big moment. Do the partisan lines in the House hold? Because there's no going back now. It's come out of committee, and now they have to either vote on it or not vote on it. And so this is the Democratic Party's big moment in the House. Do they have the votes to pass this? And do they have the votes to pass both of them? Because there's two articles on here, and they vote. They don't vote on them in as a package. They vote on them individually. So they have to vote for each one to go over. So the question is, 
there are two. And so do the first and the main one is the abuse of power. And that goes straight to Trump's phone call and whether or not he abused his power and having this phone call with Ukraine and having them dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Was that an abuse of power or not? Now, I, as I've maintained for a while, I think this is impeachable conduct, and you can make that solely based on the readout of the phone call. You don't have to go any further than that. And what Democrats did is they held all these hearings that were highly partisan, very charged, that did everything but look at that single readout of the phone call. And in fact, what Adam Schiff was most stupid of all, he tried to dramatize it and made up his own version of the phone call that, to explain what he thought happened. And so, in one fatal swoop, Democrats, especially Adam Schiff, managed to partisan, partisanize and just basically make everyone look at that readout and say, oh, we don't need that, because Schiff managed to blow it all up. So, every step of the way, if you can manage to have bungled an impeachment process, Schiff and the Democrats have done that time and time again and made people believe that this is nothing but what Trump calls it, a partisan wish hunt. And as far as Democrats' conduct have gone, Trump's not wrong. The problem is, is that he also had bad conduct here that is absolutely impeachable. It's absolutely impeachable, as I've written over and over and over again, and I'll say it here again, that conduct is impeachable. You do not want a United States president using the power of the United States to get dirt on a political rival. Now, you can argue that it was also that his personal aspirations here of digging up dirt also aligned with United States' interests in digging up corruption, I think that's a valid argument to make. I don't know how strong it is, but you can make it because the United States withholds aid all the time to get various ends that they want. So that's just something that we do. So I, you, it's a valid use of power. The question is whether or not it's an abuse of that power. It's not any sort of breaking of the law, which is what Democrats want to say. There are no broken laws here. There is no crime. It's just you're having to argue that this was a political misuse of a legal power that the president has. And I think they can make that argument. I just also think it's a bad argument and it's a bad thing to impeach on because Democrats do not have the political will of the people behind them. And you can tell that because of what happened this past week. Democrat uh, representative out of New Jersey, Jeff Van Drew, said and leaked out to the press that he was switching parties. So Van Drew is switching from being a Democrat in New Jersey to being a Republican solely on the basis of this impeachment vote, because if you look at his voting record, he votes with whatever Nancy Pelosi has in front of him 80 to 90 percent of the time. So he's switching parties solely based on impeachment. We know this. He's indicated this. And that's what he's doing is, and he's leaking this ahead of a major impeachment vote to register his dissatisfaction with the entire impeachment debacle. And Van Drew isn't just a nobody here. He's one of the newly elected representatives that Democrats had in their 2018 wave. In New Jersey, there was, there used to be even split between Democrats and Republicans in the House um, group that they would send up. And this past time, and after 2018, there was only one Republican left in their House coalition, and the rest of them were Democrats. And now there's two Republicans, because Van Drew is now switching parties. So that should tell you 
the kind of pressure that is facing these moderates as they're looking at the calendar and looking at 2020. They feel the heat and they feel how impeachment is not a winning issue for them. And we know it's not a winning issue for them because if you look at the polls, as I've told you to look at over and over again, impeachment has a very, support for it has a very slim slim lead and it's all under 50%. So this is not a majority position to have impeaching the president. It's just not. As the best, the best polls that I've seen recently show that 50% support it, which is not enough if you're trying to convince the House to do this. And because we also know if you get into some of these swing states and battleground states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and others, support for impeachment drops down to around 40% and sometimes even lower. So if you're a representative and you're looking at this, you're saying this is a 60-40 proposition. 60% of the people in my district do not support this. So how am I going to go to them and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for this. And the president won my district last time. And you know Trump is probably going to win more of these districts in 2020 because that's just where the trend lines in all these elections are pulling. That he's going to win more and more of these red rural areas and probably lose more of the suburbs and city areas. That's just what's going to happen. So if you represent those areas, and there were 31 Democrats who represent these types of districts where Trump won, you're feeling the heat. And one Democrat now has already switched parties. So that that's just that's the play of the game on this. If you're looking at the political analysis that Pelosi's making, she's already lost one, and we haven't even held a vote on the floor of the House yet. So that's going to be a big story this week, going into these three major votes. I'm actually kind of curious how the media is going to cover Van Drew. But the point, the reason that he, he switched is that he keeps pointing out that this is a partisan process, and Democrats have done nothing to assuage those concerns. They're probably not going to get very many Republican votes on their side in the House because even Republicans who dislike the president are looking at this process and they're saying this is a partisan process. Democrats are refusing to bring in any other witnesses who could testify to any of this, and they're not refining it in court. They're, they're not bringing in any GOP witnesses. They're not tra- attempting to win everybody over. They're just shoving impeachment through like they did Obamacare and, not, and just not doing anything else. And so they're losing people in that process and depending on the fact that they can get a pure party line vote through. And that's interesting when you're looking at the two articles because there are two. The first one, as I said, is abuse of power. And that's straightforward. That just is the phone call. And in my newsletter, I predicted this the moment that phone call readout came out, that this was the case for an abuse of power. And then that case for an abuse of power hasn't changed in the two or three months that this has been a major story. It just, it is what it is. And either you think that that phone call is enough for an abuse of power or you don't. So that, that's all I'm going to say on that one, because the second one is more interesting and it's the weakest of any of the articles because it's an, obst- it's an obstruction of justice is basically what it is. The other thing I'll note here before jumping into this is that Democrats had alluded to the fact in news reports that they would also include articles of impeachment on the basis of treason and bribery. And bribery in particular, they were going to put in because they had focus tested it and it tested well compared to any of their other charges. But after they, apparently what happened is Pelosi went and then they were testing this out with their all their moderates and no one agreed in the party that pursuing treason or bribery were smart moves. So all that focus group testing and all those speeches that they gave about how Donald Trump had committed a bribe, those are all down the toilet because they're not going to be a part of the articles of impeachment. 
what is a, what is a part of the articles of impeachment is abuse of power and obstruction of house of subpoenas or power just obstruction of justice basically is what the charge is and their point here is that the white house did not turn over any documents files or even witnesses that the house requested after they subpoenaed the white house and these people for their information and so the, what will happen is the white house claimed executive privilege on these things and refused to turn them over under the house subpoenas that were sent out so that's sort of where this stands. Now, usually what happens here is the House will put out a subpoena. They do this all the time with the executive branch. So subpoena for records and witnesses. And then after that, the White House can, sometimes the White House complies, but if they're going to fight it, they will refuse. They will refuse to comply with that subpoena. And what they'll do is they'll say either fight me in court or the two sides will sit down and negotiate and hammer out what it is each side wants, and the White House usually ends up relenting after all of that negotiation. That didn't happen here. Democrats didn't want to fight it in court because they knew the process of fighting for their subpoena power in courts would take too long, and they didn't want to sit down and negotiate with the president. And this isn't the first time that they've refused to sit down and negotiate on anything. In the, on the Senate side, what usually happens with district court judges' nominations and even appellate court nominations is that the places where these vacancies exist in the judicial branch, usually the home state senator and the White House will sit down and negotiate different people who should be considered a nomination for these different roles. Well, that hasn't happened in places like the Ninth Circuit because the senators in that question haven't sat down and negotiated. One of them in particular is Kamala Harris. She's absolutely refused to negotiate for any of these, and so the White House has said, well, if you're not going to offer up any names, we're just going to push through our nominees. They've gotten some pushback from some of the other senators, but some of these major presidential contenders haven't had any nominations at all. They haven't bothered to give any ideas at all for the White House. And so the White House has just said, okay, well, if you don't have anything, we're going with what we have. And the same thing happened on the subpoena front. Pelosi and House Democrats didn't want to sit down and negotiate what it was they wanted from these files because their subpoenas, while legally binding, were also pretty overbroad. And so the White House had enough. They looked at that and said, well, we've got some negotiating room here. They want everything. We're not going to give them everything. So we'll start there and negotiate our way forward. And instead of doing that, the House is now saying, oh, well, we're going to put up an, ar an article of impeachment on the fact that you're obstructing us and our subpoena power. And that just doesn't make any sense at all. So that may end up going over to the Senate, but it's so laughably weak that it shouldn't go anywhere and it should get the derision that it deserves in the Senate or even in the House. I'm actually curious to see how many votes it gets. The main one, the main enchilada, as it were, is the abuse of power article. That's the only real thing with any meat that Democrats have right now. And the obstruction one has no meat at all. So is, is the president's conduct impeachable? Sure. Is the, did, have Democrats made the case for that? I don't think so, because there's still too much softness in the polls to indicate otherwise. On the obstruction part, if the only way on the obstruction part that would make it impeachable is if the president did this after a court ruled that they had to turn over information, or the Supreme Court ruled that they had to turn over information, and then the White House continued to stonewall and refused to follow even that. That would be an impeachable offense on that one. But that ha we haven't even gotten to that point. This is just the Democrats saying, well, we don't want to fight this battle or negotiate this fight, so we're just going to impeach over it. And so that's all they've got. So that's not obstruction. It's not even really that important, but it's where we are.
So that's all happening this week. The three major thing. The conventional wisdom is that the House will pass all three of these things. And so that that will probably end up happening. The conventional wisdom is they have the votes for all. They have one Democrat who switched parties over the impeachment thing. That could make things more interesting there. I don't know. But conventional wisdom in D.C. is that all three of these are going to go through. And then the Senate will move forward on a trial and sign the other two because everybody wants both funding for the government and also the new NAFTA trade deal. So watch for that. Watch for any more different differences between the House of Representatives. Van Drew flipped on the House side against Democrats. Republicans had their own and Justin Amash, but he's really more in an independent now. He's not a Democrat. So those two kind of cancel each other out on the vote front. But the interesting thing to watch will be how many people switch sides and go to the other side. That's the big question. So the three big things. Will people switch sides on impeachment and how many? The expectation is that more Democrats than Republicans will vote on the other side, which will mean that opposition to impeachment will end up having a more bipartisan flair than support for impeachment, which will be an interesting thing to observe. On the trade deal, the big thing is that there are there any changes. If if the House and Senate try to put any changes in that, those will have to be negotiated, I believe, on them between Mexico and Canada, so that could delay that trade deal some more. And then finally, funding for the U.S. government. Those are your three big stories this week. Those are the three big things that will be covering everything in D.C. this week. So that's all I've got for this show. Keep an eye on those three things because they'll color everything. You can also keep an eye over there in Britain and watch for any more fallout. Watching people blast Jeremy Corbyn is great fun if you're a conservative or just a person on the right because he is truly an awful person. So questions, comments, questions, or feedback, feel free to reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at DevonCI. Look for our next columns to come out on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to my podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.